0: good
1: good afternoon good evening this is Dove Tusman and you're on equal footing again tonight we're talk is a second part of a two-part series around this Complex and sometimes controversial world of the legal representation of children and the guardianship process—they're not exactly one and the same. Of people that are under 18 uh, in the courts, there's lots of topics we could cover when it comes to legal guardianship. It will probably get to in another show around guardianship of seniors and guardianship of people that are incapacitated incapacitated due to mental health issues and other situations but we've been talking last week and now this week about kids in the courtroom and how state by state this is handled you know it's it's something that if it hasn't touched you in your life it's probably touched someone close to you in nearly every disputed divorce custody battles for example you often have this uh, be the case sometimes children are wards of a state system for their care in the example in the in the foster care system uh, for example and how do we as a society handle the legal advocacy for that child's right in the courtroom especially when adults around them don't agree it's murky and we're doing our best to grapple with it as a society last week we heard from a parent advocate who I think was very brave to be on the show and talk about the confusion that her seven-year-old daughter was experiencing in an active custody battle where she was assigned a lawyer by a judge in New York State. And that lawyer's going and speaking to her, pulling out of classes at school and talking to her about what her preferences are around custody and so forth, something that's very confusing for a seven-year-old. And Traumatizing to to her and probably both parents to some degree. And we've got the parent's perspective on what doesn't work from her perspective in the system. Maybe she's listening now. Maybe she'll call into this show. We've got a lot of texts, comments, and questions during last week's show also from other parents who have gone through this process of their child being assigned a guardian ad litem. We're going to get to what that means in a moment. Or a lawyer... Uh, they 're not always one and the same to represent that child 's interest in the in the court apart from the parent it 's uh, a topic though that deserves to be looked at from the other perspective as we try to do uh, we endeavor to do on this show show both sides of the of the of the coin and tonight we 're joined by two esteemed professionals who work with children in the capacity of a lawyer and a social worker respectively and spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and doing their best to represent child's interests in difficult and often disputed situations. Our first guest is Wayne Morrison and Wayne is calling in from the Atlanta, Georgia area and he represents clients in all aspects of family law including pre and post nuptial agreements, divorces, custody actions, contempt actions, etc. And Wayne focuses on complex matrimonial matters and custody disputes in particular. He's frequently appointed by courts to serve as a guardian ad litem, where he assists the court and parties in reaching decisions concerning the best interests of children. He represents clients, many of them children, in all of the greater Atlanta metropolitan counties. And Wayne also serves as a mediator. He's a frequent writer and speaker on topics related to family law, including the intersection of family law and fiduciary law and the roles of experts like guardians ad litem in family law cases. He's recognized as a super lawyer in the area of family law uh, by Atlanta Magazine. He's received a number of other accolades. Wayne received his Juris Doctor from the University of Georgia in 1996. And prior to law school, he he attended Virginia Tech, where he got a Bachelor's of Science degree in finance. He lives in Cobb County with his wife, Susan, their four children and two dogs. Fellow dog lover, and uh, he's also active in his community, coaching sports and teaching religious education classes. Wayne is of counsel at Kessler and Salimiani. I hope I got that, I pronounced that right. And we'll put in the show notes how you can reach Wayne if you're interested uh, in talking to him, either in terms of the subject matter or specifically as a as a prospective uh, counsel. So, Wayne, thanks for being on Equal Footing.
2: Of course, thank you for having me.
1: Wayne, you are joined by a, a wonderful uh, companion here in the program, Marion Spencer, and, and Marion is an adjunct professor at Long Island University. She holds various degrees, in, including a master's of social work from Fordham University as a, and a master's in public health from the University of Florida. She's also completing a PhD in health sciences from Nova Southeastern University. Uh, Professor Spencer's full-time employment, aside from her teaching duties, has included managing an intensive mental health program in Queens, New York, as well as, prov- as well as providing mental health treatment to adults with severe mental illness. And she's also managed a program for children with behavioral issues who are actively suicidal. Uh, she's referred them as well for long-term outpatient uh, treatment, has been involved in those treatment plans. And, and Professor Spencer also has worked for eight years as a foster care social worker, providing services to children and families who are in the foster care system. And Professor Spencer brings the, the social worker perspective uh, and, and and has experienced the guardian ad litem dynamic both with children as well as uh, special needs adults. So, Professor Spencer, welcome to Equal Footing. Okay, thank you. Good night. Great to be here. So, Wayne and 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 Professor Spencer, Marion, can can you guys? Let's let's start with you, Wayne, by helping the audience here understand what is this concept of guardian ad litem. You know, last week I pronounced it incorrectly. I said guardian ad litem. So, what what is this, and why should people care?
2: So, first of all, I, I want to be clear. Um, uh, I am not the, um, the child's lawyer. I am not their advocate. Um, as a guardian ad litem, no guardian ad litem is uh, the child's uh, attorney. Okay? The uh, a, an attorney representing a client uh has an obligation to zealously represent what their client wants. A guardian ad litem acts as a fact-finder. Uh they're the court's expert and their role is to gather information and to assist the court and the parties in uh, reaching an outcome that is in the best interest of their children. So what a child wants is something, depending on the age of the child, that is taken into consideration, but it is not something that uh, necessarily drives uh, the guardian's recommendation or or the guardian ad litem's work.
1: It's really, um. it's really important that you make that distinction. Last last week in the program, as a father of a of a nine year old, soon to be ten year old, I, I was trying to imagine, if an adult, particularly an adult, a lawyer, whose, you know, profession is to persuade, uh, was asking my nine year old, you know, whether she would like to, for example, you know, have vegetables with dinner, and I'm pretty sure in many cases she'd say no, and but that doesn't mean she shouldn't have vegetables with dinner. So it, that, that distinction between advocating for the child's wants but actually providing an, an, a kind of "quote unquote" impartial uh, role for the court is really important, I think, for listeners to understand. It, it, did I get that right? It's a very layperson's way to put it.
2: Yes, you got. You, you were exactly correct. Um, you know, I don't get to make decisions, right? The, no, God, the guardian ad litem does not make decisions. The guardian ad litem. Uh, We'll prepare a written report or a, a verbal report. Uh, you know, we're subject at trial uh, to be cross-examined. Uh, the judge listens to us, and really, when it's used properly, the guardian ad litem has time to devote to a case to learn more and to better uh, assist both the parties, the child, and the court in, in reaching a conclusion that is best for the child.
1: Now, before we get to the social worker and, and psychologist perspective with you, Professor Spencer, is what you're describing particular to the state of Georgia? I know these these rules vary a lot state by state. Or do do all states have this concept of the guardian ad litem and the and the legal representative of the child being different?
2: So we do have. Some states uh, in the Northeast, uh, I believe New York is one, um, we can go across to Illinois. There's a, another state, not in the Northeast, but that they have a concept where they have attorneys that are appointed to represent the children's wishes, uh, and uh, that is a, a very, very different thing. And they are not called guardian ad litems. They are child representatives, and they, they serve in an attorney-type role in the cases in which they're appointed. Um, so that is that is different the guardian universally and I believe the um, the American Bar Association uh, has something along these same lines is uh, the guardian ad litem is the courts expert they are a neutral and they are to help the parties and the court uh, find what is best for the children
1: okay we're gonna we're going to turn to you, Professor Spencer. This is really complex state by state. One of the things that we came across last week in the show is the, the fact that only four states of the 50 states actually require the guardian to consult, explicitly consult with a child psychologist or a social worker or someone else that has a different skill set uh, than, than, than the guardian I'd later might bring. Uh, in your experience, and you're, of course, working in, in, in New York State, as I, as I understand it, what, what, how does the social worker and the child's guardian interact? Are they one and the same in New York? How do you interact with the lawyer? Help us sort through who's representing the child's interests.
0: Well, um, oftentimes for um, the social worker, we bring a different point of view because most times we have seen the child, like numerous times, um, inquiring what's happening in the days and in the days out of, of the child, making sure that the child has everything that they need, and even living at home, you know, what's in the best interest. So we often even go out in the field, go to the school, inquire about, like, the medical piece to make sure that the child is up to date with their medical and everything. So we often investigate everything. We go to the home and make sure, you know, the child has, like, appropriate, um, sleeping environment or everything is doing well in the home. But we the, we are also different from the guardian at Lighten because we can also bring back a written report uh, um, as to the findings that we have when we go out to see the child and also um, oftentimes we may bring back what the child may have said or in our investigation and interviewing of the child, what the child's recommendation or what the wants are. So all of this it comes together with the fact finding because again with the, the guardian at litem they're also doing their own fact finding to find out okay what is the best interest of the child where is the best place for the child to be whether it's at home with the mom or dad or an, or another relative or um, in the foster care system like a, a foster parent or something so everyone in their own um, profession is meeting with the client to see what is the best interest of the child. That's the ultimate goal. And we bring our own findings and we go to court and everyone presents their case, the mom's attorney, the father's attorney, um, the state, um, which here in New York is uh, New York City City Children's Services. So everyone has their own attorney and it's presented to the judge, and then the judge makes a, a finding.
1: Right. We're getting a little bit of echo here in the line. not sure what's going on. Uh, Okay. So, Professor Spencer, thank you for outlining that for us. Uh, When we come back after our first break, I want to hit you guys with a couple of the texts that we got from parents last week because the way the system should work, it doesn't seem to be the way the system actually does work, (laughs) at least in certain cases. You're on equal footing, and we're talking about the guardian ad litem system and also they're not the same thing, but also the representation, the legal representation of children in court, uh, particularly in custody battles and in situations that can be very difficult emotionally and psychologically for the child. Participate in the discussion. Give us your perspective, your personal experience. You can call in. When you call, you can say your real name or speak anonymously. Either way, whatever you feel safe with. The number to call is 718-303-9090. That's 718 303 And if you feel more comfortable not hearing your own voice on the air and you want to text in a question or comment, feel free to do so. We got a lot last week. 917-428-4062 is the number to text, or you can you can even WhatsApp a question or comment. Again, 917-428-4062. We'll be right back on Equal Footing.
3: I can keep up with your turning tables under your thumb, I
1: can't Let's talk about one of our sponsors for a second here in Equal Footing. Great company doing great things. DocuVax. Check it out. You can download the app on your iPhone or Android phone at DocuVax, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X, or you can go to DocuVax.com. DocuVax gives you the power to organize and validate your medical records on your own terms. Your medical records, immunization records, serology reports, x-rays, etc., they don't belong to your doctor. They don't belong to your insurance company. They certainly don't belong to the government. They belong to you. And the way you share them The way you you, uh, do that with a new school, with a new employer, uh, even to get into a restaurant these days, you often have to uh, share your immunization status, should be under your own terms. Many states are implementing programs where you have to show, for example, your COVID vaccine status, and you can do that using your own medical locker profile at Docuvax you can share the information in your medical locker using a proprietary QR code based system that only reveals exactly what you want to reveal you don't have to show someone at a restaurant or your your birthday for example you don't have to do that like like the Excelsior program makes you do in New York Docuvax is recognized at the state level as a way to validate your immunization and other records and the best part is if you sign up at Docuvax Medical professionals are on call for you 24 hours a day to validate are doctors and nurses to to validate your vaccine records, your blood tests, or anything else in your locker. So put an end to worrying if you or someone you care about is up to date on a particular vaccine, a blood test, or even an important preventative screening, like for colorectal or breast cancer, for example. Take control of your medical file. Sign up at docuvax.com or through the app on your smartphone, docuvax. For as little as $6.99 per month, you can privately access all of your medical records from a secure HIPAA compliant digital storage facility. And if you run a small business or a organization, you're part of like, for example, a university or a church organization, you can get Group discounts by sponsoring individuals. The data remains the property of the individual subscriber, but you can, can sponsor and pay for others' uh, memberships with group discounts, especially if you mention that you heard about DocuVax on equal footing. You can call 833-859-1933 for those group discounts to sign up as an organization. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. Take control of your medical file. I've been cold, but I'm keeping on, keeping on, All right, you're back on Equal Footing. We somewhat tongue-in-cheek called tonight's program in some of our social media promotion, Shh, the adults are speaking. <laughs> and the reason we called it that is because this program is about when adults represent children. Their, they do their best to represent the children's interests in court as best as they can, they can either as a guardian, the term of, of art is the, a legal guardian, a guardian ad litem, uh, or as a lawyer in a, in a court proceeding, but we don't always get it right. We never get it right. We never get it right always, I should say, as, as, as parents, and we can't expect the same either uh, in, in, the, in the legal system. Professor Spencer and and Wayne Morrison, I want to uh, read you, if I can, uh, a text from from our program last week where we were hearing from parents. And granted, this is in New York, but hopefully, you know, maybe starting with you, Wayne, you can reflect on on how the system could be better and where there are deficiencies. Um, this is uh, this is a, 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 a someone who asked her name not to be said on the radio, but she said that the that the subject matter was uh, killing her. That it was, um, it was really, I guess, what she meant by that is causing her, causing her emotional distress. She says, my experience in New York was brief, but for now I can say that the child appointed to my 10-year-old daughter spent very little time with my child. It seemed to me that she did not have any mental health background or background in violence or different types of abuse or any specialization that was relevant in her case. She did not reach out to any of my child's providers or teachers, therapists, etc. She just let the conversation between her and a young child take precedence without any neutral advisors that are directly involved in my daughter's life. I was not at all impressed. I was hoping my child's lawyer would be my child's voice, a voice of reason, a voice of protection. That's a voice she doesn't have. So it goes on, but this was heartbreaking as a parent to read. Wayne, is how typical is this? Obviously, I'm sure your, your heart breaks these situations as well. You wouldn't have gone into the field, but does the system right. always work?
2: Well, no system w- works 100% of the time, um, and... I would have questions about the investigation and the work that uh, is being described. So what should happen is that the um, guardian ad litem should interview the parents separately, right? We, I would interview both parents uh, individually, uh, and then I would observe the children typically with both parents separately, right? So i go to, start maybe with mom, and she would come in my office. I'd interview with her, uh, interview them with dad, and then maybe go to mom's house and watch mom with the child, watch dad with the child later. Uh, and there's no set order to that. But I additionally, I am getting information, materials. I'm talking with uh, teachers, administrators at the schools, uh, I'm asking for medical records. Uh, a guardian has uh, a duty to do a full investigation, and if any guardian only talked to the child, uh, cross-examination at a trial would be somewhat ugly and uncomfortable for that guardian, I would think.
1: Now, Wayne, sorry for the interruption. One of the the pieces that, that I was tasked with researching before today's show was an American Bar Association study on Problems in the guardian ad litem system, and a lot of it had to do with the lack of rules. Uh, so very few states actually mandate, as I understand, although I'm sure it's best practice. uh right. There are very few states, that, as I understand it, that mandate the guardian ad litem to consult with therapists or social workers or others that might be in the in the child's life. Is that is that wrong? Is the ABA onto something there?
2: No, no that is correct. Um, what we have to take a look at is uh how we get a guardian in a specific case okay the guardian is going to be appointed by the judge now that may be uh a person uh usually an attorney but not always an attorney that the um that the, that maybe the uh, the two lawyers agree on but it's going to be someone that the judge has confidence
1: in sorry Wayne, you and, said the two lawyers that would be the advocate for the the, yeah. the two parents in a yep. custody battle
2: that is absolutely correct. So they may, uh, you know, I have two cases right now where I'm the guardian, and uh, the lawyers on the different sides, the four, you know, lawyer representing mom, lawyer representing dad, uh, four different lawyers with the two cases, uh, they agreed on me uh, to go and do the investigation. The judge agreed. Uh, an order was signed. Uh, the order gives me the authority to get uh, confidential health information from doctors, to, to get all those things.
1: Sorry, Wayne, did the judge recommend you and they approved you, or did they, the two parents who are obviously adversaries in the custody proceeding, did they, like, find you together? How did they get to you?
2: The uh, lawyers representing the parents. Um, and what typically would happen is one lawyer uh, would call the other. They would see if they could agree. When I'm representing one of the parents, uh, I would usually provide the other side three three names. These are three attorneys who I've worked with as guardian ad litem. Do any of these people uh, sound agreeable to you? Okay. Um, Now, sometimes the the parties don't agree, and then the judge appoints someone. Uh, But you hit on a key term when you said adversarial. The adversaries. The guardian doesn't really, uh, doesn't have anyone advocating for them. So they're up there and they're going to testify if the case goes to trial. And one of those lawyers is probably not going to be entirely happy with what the guardian recommends. Sure. And there's a time where both lawyers are not happy with part of the recommendations, right? Everyone, No one's going to probably get everything their client wants. And the guardian is going to be cross-examined. Did you talk to the teachers? When did you talk to the teachers? Did you get medical records? Uh, did you contact DFACS? Um So if a, if a guardian does not do a thorough investigation, uh, they um, – are probably not going to be listened to by the judge because they're going to be left bruised and bloodied at the end
1: of the trial. So if you would allow me to interpret this as a layperson, are you saying the system is kind of self-regulating because if the guardian, even if they're not mandated to consult with the uh, school social worker or a therapist or or a coach or other people in the child's life, they're going to get torn apart in cross-examination. So they don't have... They're not mandated to do it, but if they don't do it, they're not going to do their job well?
2: Uh, So in an ideal world, yes, it is self-regulated. And I am saying they will get uh, bruised and bloodied. It it would be naive to think that a judge is not going to rely on the guardian uh, a great deal. They appointed the guardian. The guardian is their expert. Um, So if one side at some point during during the process loses confidence in a guardian – they, they can file a motion to have that guardian removed and replaced, right. and yeah. they can present evidence about that.
1: So we're going to take another break in a minute, but I we've been talking about the, the problems in the, in the system last week and touched on it now in terms of guardianship of, of minors and legal representation of minors in, in, in divorce battles and in custody battles. But there's a different pers- – and that's where maybe the, the parents are often – I guess you're helping explain why I've gotten so many texts, even even as we started this show, from parents who have been dissatisfied because by definition, you're not going to probably please at least one, if not both sides, when you're impartial. So that that's helping to explain something to me. But there's – let's turn it around with you, Professor Spencer, where you're working where there isn't an adversarial situation with parents, but rather – the state is the actor and the, and the child is, is effectively a ward of the state in the foster care system, for example. And here yes. there's a really, we're going to put this in the show notes. is a really good article, uh, by Catherine Federley and Daniel Gondowski. It's gotten a lot of uh, distribution called the curious case of the guardian ad litem. And it talks about how in various, uh, State-level department, you know, the, the the foster care system often governed by like a DCF, Department of Children and Families, and state by state, they have these these departments have different names. But how often the kids don't know that they have a lawyer. In fact, there's there's a testimony in, in in the article for someone who's become an advocate uh, for better relations between foster children and 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 guardians, who says, I'm not going to quote the the whole thing for, in the interest of time, but says. Uh, I was in in the Department of Children and Families under foster care since I was 12 years old, but I didn't even know that I had a lawyer that was assigned and was representing me until I was 18 years old. That was when I found, and the reason I found out was that was when I found fa- I found out that I no longer had that lawyer. So, talk to us a little bit about that dynamic where it isn't the child in a custody battle with their two you know, adversarial parents, but where you're involved, professor, with a child as their guardian, perhaps in the um, in terms of their 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 welfare being guarded by the state.
0: Yes. Um, so I actually wanted to even um, speak about the previous question where the 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 um the mom wrote last week about her um. You know, her 12-year-old only met with the guardian for five minutes, normally on a typical case. And i said I've worked with guardian at license for approximately eight years. Um, the, 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 the guardian ad license that I've worked with, they have gone to the schools. They have gathered medical records. They have gone to the homes, gone to the foster homes, um, invited the child to come to their offices to meet with them. So I don't... Um, the experience that I've had has been very positive. And I've also had cases where the guardian ad litem is, is able to hear my concerns that I've had, even like when I go to foster homes and the concern that I have where it may not be the best placement for the child. And the guardian, you know, has also, the guardian ad also did their own investigation and agreed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and assist with getting how the child moved to another location or, in, or a different foster home um, and and it these are cases where and, and that may run and,
1: and, and that may run sorry, for the interruption professor by the way, we're getting some feedback. it may be because you're on a, a headset you might want to transfer to a handset but I, I that brings up what Wayne said earlier about how the guardian and light is not maybe a lawyer by training but it's not acting in by bound by the duties of loyalty and advocacy that a lawyer were, ha, would have where you just go with your clients pre, express preferences it, it, uh, as I understand it a guardian may go against the preferences of the ward of the person they're they're guarding if they think it's in, in the best interest that's kind of part of their role as if I understand it correctly
0: Yes yes they so, they have their duty is to act in the best interest of the child.
1: Yeah. So uh, we're going to go to a break. But let me ask you just point blank Professor Spencer in your many years of working in the foster system and interacting with with guardians I'd like them. If you just had to say a percentage of the time that you think in retrospect they get it right in the foster care system as it pertains to the major decisions of their of their ward, the child they're guarding. What percentage do you think of the time they get it mostly right?
0: hard it's hard The percentage is hard to see
1: go with How can i give
0: a percentage
1: i mean is it is it 9 out of 10 or is it 5 out of 10
0: it's it's maybe 6 out of 10
1: okay and to get but, that 6 uh, one more question before we go to break cuz i can i can't help myself to get that it, 6 out of 10 to a 9 out of 10 what do we need to do is it is it better regulations or training for those people uh, or is it just unavoidable that it's just the way that, I mean, just as in parenting, we make mistakes. Do you think we can get that six out of ten up to nine out of ten?
0: Yes, we can. But I think it um, it comes with working with professionals who actually know about child, children's health, children's mental health, the best interest of the child, and not just, like, ask questions to the child, okay, um, do you prefer mom or dad, I think more intensive training would help for people to understand and even learn how to even ask questions to children more appropriately and, age, you know, age-appropriate questions. So with the appropriate training, I think we can get there.
1: That's what's so scary and one of the reasons why I wanted to do this program as a, as a parent of a young child is I know how especially really sensitive and kind children can often be try to please everyone. And when you have two parents that are pitted against each other, uh, they'll often toggle between trying to please both parents and whoever's talking to them at that given time. So for me, it's so scary to even think of, uh, uh, no matter how well trained the person, it just seems very perilous to say to a child, okay, your parents are fighting, Uh, you know, where do you think you should live? Where do you want to go to school? I mean… I would imagine you could get different responses depending on who's asking what time of the day and what the child thinks the consequences of their answer. We'll come right back talking to Professor Marion Spencer, uh, accomplished lawyer Wayne Morrison, talking about this complicated dynamic of representing children in court, both as guardians, as lawyers, as social workers. How do we do this better? We'll be back on Equal Footing.
3: That's 212-661-3376. You could even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been calling.
1: Alright, you're back on equal footing. I'm joined, my name is Dove Tusman and I'm joined by Wayne Morrison and Professor Marion Spencer. Wayne is a family law attorney, works in complex divorce and custody battles. Professor Spencer is a professor, adjunct professor at Long Island University and has worked as a social worker for many years dealing with uh, children's issues, with the mental health context and the foster care system. And if you're listening and wondering why this topic matters to so you, ought to care. If you care about kids, if you're a parent that you know has the prospect of going through, God forbid, a divorce proceeding, or you have friends that have gone through this, this touches many more of us than you'd think. Uh, I think many people, when they go through a custody battle in a divorce, Wayne, I'd be curious whether you think I'm saying uh, this is a truthful statement. Tend to be very private about it, even with their closest friends. It can be so painful, so traumatizing, that you might not know that that friend of yours going through that divorce process actually does have a guardian ad litem uh, assigned for their child, or a lawyer in certain states advocating for their child in court. And it's complex. Those the you know we heard last week uh, from a, a mother who was on the program who told us about. Uh, a lawyer taking her kid out of school, it's her daughter at seven years old, asking her where she wanted to live, asking her her preferences, uh, in the context of the legal proceeding. It's hard. Wayne, in researching, I went down a rabbit hole in the, the research process for this, uh, for the show, and I was trying to figure out where the, uh, guardian ad litem concept comes from. And my understanding is this goes back like, 2000 years if not more to Roman law this concept of like of someone taking over uh, the decisions of, of, of another person and we at least I like it's ingrained it makes sense to me because I've always understood that there are guardians in legal, conce- legal contexts. maybe in my case because I have a younger brother who has um, severe mental health challenges and he's had guardianship uh, dynamics with the state but It isn't. I think you step back. It isn't totally obvious. Like, why doesn't the judge in a divorce proceeding, for example, simply hear both parents' sides, um, ask social workers to testify, talk to psychologists, and uh, and and make an impartial decision, which would seem to be more in line with so many disputes in court? Why, Why, in in this case, do the courts generally assign an advocate or a custodian? We're not. They're not the same thing. We've talked about that. For the child.
2: Well, we um, we only have an hour to start with, so. Um, but what I what I will say is, the the guardian ad litem or a guardian for someone like your like your brother, very different than a guardian ad litem in a, a divorce case or a custody modification case. The guardian ad litem in a divorce case or a, modif- a custody case. Does not get to make legally binding decisions for that child. Uh, they are, uh, again, you know, the court's expert there to conduct an investigation. You know, so the investigation I, I hit on a little bit uh, before, uh, you know, you talk, a good investigation, I would think, you talk to the child, uh, you observe the child first with the parents, right? You want to see how the child and mom interact. You want to see how the child and dad interact. Uh, you want to talk to the child outside of the presence of mom or dad also. Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, I've interviewed kids at school before, and the reason that you might do that is if you think one of the parents is maybe biasing the child and you want to talk to the child in a, a neutral environment where one parent hasn't brought him or her to your office, or picking them up from your office. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're in uh, a completely neutral environment. They're around teachers. Ideally, there's a trust factor there. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants anything except for what's best for the child.
1: Wayne, when you go in, sorry for the interruption, I don't want to interrupt your mental flow, but when you go into the school and you talk to the child, does the child get a heads up? Like when that nine-year-old goes to school, does does, does he or she know that a lawyer is coming in to, to talk to them that day? Or is it a surprise? Most
2: often they do not know. Got it. All right, and and the reason they don't know is if the child knows, the parents are going to know. And when I do that, and I think when most guardians I know do that, they're trying to avoid one of the parents coaching the child to prepare the child. And you know, the parents uh you know they're they're in a crucible going through a divorce, they're parenting under a microscope, and everything's being second-guessed. And, you know, typically, uh, you know, I'm sure the professor might agree. I would think so. We are not seeing parents at their best. Um, right. They're being That's second-guessed. Uh, but when it comes to the child, I- I'm not – the guardian shouldn't be worried about mom. The guardian shouldn't be worried about dad or uh, offending anybody's sensibilities the, the guardian should be worried about the child, and that's the beginning and that's the end. What is the be- what is going to be the best interest for that child?
1: Wayne, we just got a, a, a real-time uh, message from the same parent that I quoted who wrote a text last week. Uh, listening to your comments here, she, she, she wants to be clear that in her case, her child needed someone with experience in sexual and physical abuse. And that the person assigned had no such experience. So talk to us about that.
2: Sure. Uh, I do not have the qualifications that the professor has. and I've had cases where I am the guardian and I've expected physical or sexual abuse uh, or I've expected uh, mental health issues. And the most in most instances the guardian has the ability, to ask for uh, a psychological evaluation of the child, uh, to ask for a custody evaluation of the parents and the child, where the, the parties are uh, subjected to um, in a custody evaluation, mom and dad, complete lengthy questionnaires, uh, different, and they're subjected to all types of tests and questionings by a, um, by a, a psychologist. And so is the child. Uh, you're you not, you're not
1: required to consult with a psychologist. Not right?
2: required. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is a limitation and one of the imperfections in the system is uh, some cases there are not the financial resources for that, right. and we quite simply have to do the best that we can with what we have.
1: Who pays, and, who pays your bills?
2: The uh, The parents.
1: Is it ever where the parents can't afford, I mean, does does the guardian ad litem ever get assigned by the judge and the state, the 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 state pays, or is it always shared costs between the parents?
2: It is. I've never had a case where the state paid in Georgia. I don't believe that the state does. Um, not in a divorce setting. Now, juvenile court, where we're talking about dependency and we're talking about the foster system. Uh, that's different, and the state does appoint uh, guardians um, in those types of instances.
1: Professor Spencer, who, who pays your bills when you're in, involved in this type of situation? Not in the custody battle, but in the foster care dynamic.
0: In the foster I, the agency that I worked for,
1: yes. And is that ultimately paid by the state, or is that like a non yes, by the state, by the file? Okay. yes got it. So we have a couple of we have a caller that's been patiently waiting and I want to uh, I'm sorry to have interrupted you Wayne. I just think that this this will uh you know make it a little bit more uh, visceral and then after the break I'd love for you guys to share some direct personal experiences of success because we've been talking about some of the the, the problems um, in the in the system. But uh a, a mother writes, uh, in a, uh no, I'm not going to edit it. For, I was going to edit it in terms of the language, but I know, Wayne, that as a, as a mature professional, I'm sure you've dealt with um, distraught uh, parents and you won't be personally offended. Some other writes, I'm sitting here, I feel like it gives more opportunities to use the children as pawns while some BS lawyer sits back and collects. I'm sure it's not the first time that you've ever heard that type of sentiment. No. If there's a parent listening and is dealing with this and is feeling that, what would you say to them?
2: Well, so one, the lawyer does collect information, right? We collect information, we and we analyze it to make a recommendation.
1: I don't know whether uh, she meant collects money or collects information. So, information. If, listener, if you want to clarify what you meant by that, because I didn't get the. But let's assume that, that she meant collects uh, information. Okay. Uh,
2: and it's like any process, okay? Uh, the guardian's report, the guardian's recommendation, is only going to be as good as the information that they have. So when we talked earlier about um, asking a child, who do you want to be with, mom or dad? Uh, I don't ask that question, and mm-hmm. a good guardian doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ask open-ended questions. You don't want, I mean, I, I cannot imagine uh, at my age right now, in my mid-50s, someone asking me to choose my mother or my father. Uh, and, I, you know, so I, I would hate to think, and I know it happens, but I would hate to think it happens with any regularity that a guardian ad litem does this. Mm-hmm. In Georgia, we could have children as young as, um, 12 write elections, right, or sign elections saying which parent they want to be with. One of the first things that happens, uh, when you have a guardian, in the cases I'm involved with, the guardians say, we don't want that child signing an election, we don't want a, an attorney putting an election in front of that child. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry the, for the election is not determinative.
1: Sorry for the interruption, Wayne. Just to clarify, because we're going to come up on the break here, that, that that listener heard my question, which was in in her message, did she mean collects information or money? And she says, money. Uh, the lawyer hasn't collected anything else. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a hard... Uh,
2: uh, that, that's, uh,
1: that's hard to hear. It,
2: it is. Um, and it's unfortunate. And what her lawyer ought to be doing is asking you know talking to the guardian uh, i always and every guardian i've worked with uh tell the tells the lawyers that are representing mom dad or grandparents or another family member if you ever have questions let me know uh, give me a chance to explain it the other thing we talked you've mentioned is briefly, the parent
1: allowed to do that to just reach out to the guardian oh gosh yes yes Because what we heard Uh, in last week's program was that parents were were told, maybe this is the New York context where it was a lawyer, not a guardian. We're told that they could only reach out jointly. Okay, I'm uh, actually getting a real-time clarification. This is a New York situation where just a lawyer has been assigned to the child, not a guardian at light.
2: Okay. So that's different, right? Because with a lawyer, there's a privilege issue. And as an attorney, if you represent a client... You cannot share what your client is telling you with other people. That A guardian is different, and I may not sh- even as a guardian, I am probably not going to share with either parent what that child tells me exactly because that's not going to be in that child's best interest necessarily. It may uh, serve to co- drive a wedge between a child and one of the parents. Um, I'm going to be uh, respectful I'm going to put it in my report possibly right uh, if I have to do a report for the court and the parents will see it that way but you don't start you don't start with the child and you don't stop with the child One of the first things that a lawyer ought to be telling their client I want to know teachers, neighbors, coaches um, rabbis ministers, priests who is going to be able to tell me about you and your child and your relationship. Mm-hmm. I Professor want to talk to them.
1: Professor Spencer, uh, there's a quick question for you, and then we do have to take our, our last ad break. Uh, that there's a, a, a listener that's writing about uh, the extent of the client uh, set. So, how many, and the fact that there's no way that these that the social workers can actually attend effectively to the individual clients. How many children? Do you kind of – or someone in your position have on on their docket, so to speak? How many kids are you represented either as a guardian or working on their case as a social worker? And how do you actually give each kid the individual attention they need given the limited resources?
0: Um, as a social worker, we have around maybe 15 to 20 clients, and our goal is to see the client at least once a week. We try to see them. Um, we see them in schools, sometimes at the home, different locations, wherever the child is. We, you know, we can go and see them um, at any time. So, and again, we gather information and share it with the guardian at Lysam, and I think even the discussion where I think the mom was asking about, you know, she had an incident where her case was sexual abuse, this um, the city has programs where, if a child has experienced sexual um, abuse in any way, there are specialties like the New York Society for the Prevention of Children of Cruelty to Children. They have different departments where the child could be in, can be interviewed by a psychologist or a licensed social worker and a professional who could also provide a report to court. So I think maybe the resources weren't provided to the mom or to the attorney or to the guardian of the license where there are agencies out there. And services that's available to to families mm-hmm. and to to um you know to the parents so they know where to take their child if there's a concern.
1: And hopefully those services are availed of by by the professionals involved. Uh, we're gonna yeah. bef- before the break actually make a judgment call to take this. Caller's question, and then uh, we can ruminate on the question over the break because of the limited time, and then come back. But b- before doing so, uh, Professor Spencer, the genesis of my question was some of the research and going to the show about, uh, I guess, not in major cities, but it, it, that there have been some district attorneys that have actually brought cases of abuse of guardianship systems, um, particularly in rural areas where there are less, and in Indian reservations as well, where there are less resources available, and people sometimes have. Hundreds of, of clients um, that they're getting paid for this state by. That's probably fodder for another show. Uh, all right, caller. I hope I do this without tr- dropping the caller. Caller on line four, you're on the air. Let's take your question and then we'll go to a break and have the guests think about it on the break.
4: Hi, it's Stan. Good evening.
1: Stan, how are you? Good evening.
4: Okay. Uh, I want to speak to uh, this is a question from Les Field and it's to the social worker and to uh, Wayne. How much politics is played in a lot of these decisions? From you have people you have to answer to? Is there any politics? It sounds crazy. Is there any politics in any of these decisions? I know that sounds, you know, absolutely uh, crazy. But
1: We're going to get to the answer after the break, but can you clarify what you mean by politics?
4: Well, in many cases, the state wants to see certain results. Skewed to. I'm not saying you do that. Let me make that clear, Wayne. Or the, uh, but they want to see certain numbers maybe a certain way. And I'm wondering, do you get any pressure either one of you, or do you see things like that? Maybe not for you, but from other places, from the higher ups.
1: Okay, that's a really interesting question. I think that uh, I would add into that the. If there's a, a bias towards, is there a gender bias also sometimes? in the Yeah, but I'm
4: more worried yeah. about the up, you know, the uh, people upstairs, then right. putting a little pressure on
1: All them. right. Well, we'll get to that after the break. Stay with okay. us. Oh, okay. Oh, a pleasure to talk to you. Please stay on the line. We'll be right back.
4: The right there, right there in the details. You to hurt yourself, hurt yourself. Don't look into All
1: right. Let, let's talk for a moment about a sensitive topic it's erectile dysfunction Uh, a lot of folks uh, a lot of partners deal with this it's emotionally painful Manhattan Medical yes based in the New York area but available by tele uh, consult by telephone to to anybody uh, in the US provides a new effective therapy for erectile dysfunction it's called gains wave it does not involve expensive blue pills it's non-invasive it's surgery free it's painless A lot of folks can't take traditional remedies for erectile dysfunction due to other conditions. Manhattan Medical gives you another option. It's extremely effective, no side effects, and in the vast majority of patients, wonderful results. This sponsor came to equal footing through a close friend of mine who's in his mid-80s and has struggled with erectile dysfunction, and and he used the Manhattan Medical's Gaines Wave Therapy Methodology uh, with success and it's really changed his life and emotional health. Uh, it, this is something that's difficult to talk about, but does affect as many as 60% of men at some point in their life. Call Manhattan Medical. Get a consult. 888 EDQ or nine is the number that's 888 EDQ or nine or numerically 888 332 8739. That's 888 332 888-332-8739. Call Manhattan Medical. The Gaines Wave therapy could help you, could help you in your relationship. Uh, and if you mention e- that you heard about Manhattan Medical's Gaines Wave therapy for erectile dysfunction on equal footing, you get a free consult, which is a $250 value. So again, 888-332-8739. Operators are standing by. I've been caught. we are back on Equal Footing, and I'm Dove Tuzman, and we're joined by Wayne Morrison, who's a family law attorney, and Professor Marion Spencer, who's a social worker and has worked in the foster care system. We've been talking about guardianship, legal guardianship for children in the context of court disputes, and our caller asked a really interesting question about the the pressures that may exist in the system. Uh, Let's see. Professor Spencer, are there such pressures? Do you you feel them? Just because you feel them doesn't mean you you cop to them, but do you feel kind of political pressures in in this world of representing uh, children in court?
0: Um, So there has been, um, I would say, one incident in particular where I recall being pressured to um, have a child remain in a home where it was not in his best interest. And um, when I brought in the report, like, we even have reports from the school that there was a concern that it's not the best placement for the child. And when I brought it up to, you know, the higher-ups, they were saying, uh, well, continue to work with the the foster family. Um, You know, we don't want to move the child again. But it was not in the the best interest. Like, his well-being was not cared for. He was physically not cared for. Um, So... I had to. Actually, this was a case where the Guardian Ad actually helped me because I presented the information and the school's information to the Guardian Ad and she also did her investigation and she assisted me in removing the child into a more appropriate foster home. So there sometimes are a little bit of pressure to say, okay, maybe you're digging too deep, or maybe you're asking for too much of these families or the foster families, or. You know, maybe you're inquiring too much. So there are sometimes like pressures where it's like you're doing too much.
1: And good for you for resisting it in that context. And, and, and Wayne, how about you? Quickly, we're short on time. Have you ever felt kind of external pressures or political pressures as a guardian ad litem?
2: Uh, I have not, and it, it may be the uh, unfortunate. But what I go back to is a judge makes the decision, and if they don't like my recommendation. They don't follow it, and uh, I've I've been fortunate that I haven't had that happen, but I've seen it happen, and, uh, you know, guardians get challenged in court, and you end up having teachers called to to testify, and you end up having coaches and friends and all the people the guardian talked to and others uh, testify in court, and at the end of the day, the judge makes the decision.
1: There's a, a we just have two minutes left. A listener's uh, comment brings up the last thing I wanted to, to, to say, and they say we have so many ways to get involved in noble causes involving children. The question to the panel is why have you chosen this professional path? Give us 30 seconds uh, each, and just on an inspirational note, Professor Spencer.
0: Okay, so I chose this path. I love working with children. I have an absolute passion for persons with severe mental illness for the disenfranchised. I absolutely love seeing the progress that persons make when society counts them out. And I work with them individually to say things can be changed, your life can change. It may not be what it used to be, but there's always like a light at the end of the tunnel. So that's what does it for me. I've been doing it for many, many years, and I plan to do it for my, the rest of my life.
1: God bless, and help us get that 6 out of 10 up to 9 out of 10. <laughs> How about you, Wayne? Just, we're, just uh, super quick, 20, 30 seconds.
2: Sure. Uh, I have a chance to make a difference for the better. We get to deal with children and families in crises and uh, try to help them out of it.
1: Thank you, Wayne Morrison and Professor Marion Spencer, being on Equal Footing, talking about this sensitive subject of children's representation or guardianship in court. If you're a parent and you're listening, check out the show notes. You can listen to Equal Footing on SoundCloud next week. Hopefully, we'll talk about other distribution methods after the live programming. And uh, you can even, I'm sure, reach out to, to either of these individuals or others from last week. Uh, to We'll include other resources in the show notes if you're dealing with this issue. God bless. Talk next week. Thanks.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank me us to the right. Here
1: I am stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And I'm what it is I should do. It's so hard to keep the smile from my face. Losing joy, I'm alone. Thank you.